Welcome to the PhD in Parenting Podcast. The podcast where we talk about being a parent in academia and an academic at home. We're your hosts. This is Judith. And I'm Erin. So today we want to talk about something that affects all of us on a daily basis, which is healthy eating and how we think about what we're eating and what type of example we're setting for our children. Because let's face it, we're all living in a pretty fast-paced world where convenience food reigns. We live in a society where we're often rewarded with food. I myself have thought a lot about healthy eating and the kind of example I'm setting for my children. And I think this is especially relevant as we move into this world where we're at home all day, every day, thinking about what we're going to eat and what's next. But I think it's really relevant to those of us who are responsible for cooking, which, let's be honest, still often falls onto the shoulders of mothers and working mothers in particular. I know that a lot of households now are dividing up this work a little more equally, but I think as both of you and I know, this seems to fall in our domain. And so I thought this would be a really good conversation when you brought this up because it's something that has affected me. I thought this was a really great topic. You did. What made you think about bringing this up on the podcast? Yeah, this came up for us very recently uh, when my daughter went back to school. They have a really, really great program in our school district, which is a free breakfast program. So when they get, when the kids get to school, they settle into their classroom and they have uh, a breakfast together at school. So the issue with that is that it's usually a muffin or a pancake or a croissant with eggs and cheese, all of which sounds very, very tasty. And my daughter loves it, but it also it's also loaded with preservatives and sugar and all these other kinds of things that just, to me, don't seem to really set them up for having a great day. They include a piece of fruit in the breakfast, but when I was talking to her, I sort of got the impression that she's not really touching the fruit. And we talked about it and she was like, well, why don't I suggest to my teacher that we have a common bowl where everybody saves their fruit and then we can eat it throughout the day. But of course, you know, with everything that's going on, they're not going to allow them to do that. So a lot of the fruit goes to waste. And then but then the the muffins and the pancakes and the croissants get eaten. And then on top of that, and I know that like teachers do this a lot, especially during the first week to when you know, when they're trying to teach kids what the rules are and things like that. She had another fudge brownie or something like that, that she brought home that she had gotten as a reward for something that she didn't remember what the behavior was that was being rewarded, but she remembered the brownie. And so my husband and I talked about it and we, you know, had to talk to her about, you know, we really don't think that you should be eating that breakfast. And we were struggling with how to communicate that to her in a way that didn't create issues around these foods or that didn't sort of make the foods more desirable because we told her she couldn't have them kind of thing. And so I decided that I have to spend a little bit more time not just learning about what is healthy food and what does it mean to be eating healthy and generally living a healthy lifestyle, but also how to communicate that to my kids and how to set them up in a way where those are, you know, those positive connotations are built around healthy foods rather than, you know, this connotation that like uh, everything that's good is bad for you kind of thing. And then that just has been an issue for me a lot where I desire these like foods that I know are bad for me and then indulge and then you feel guilty and it doesn't make you feel good, but you still crave them. And so I wanted to set my daughter up in a way where she doesn't fall into that cycle, but I'm not really sure how to do that. And so that's, you know, I thought would be something interesting to talk about for us and to do a little bit more research into what people are recommending. Erin, you already kind of mentioned it a little bit. How have you, how has your relationship with food developed over the years and how how are your kids dealing with that? Since your kids are a little bit older, you've probably spent a little more time than me thinking about this. Um, so why don't you tell us a little bit about how that works for you? Oh my gosh. So when we were thinking about planning this one, I'm like, I have to kind of start at the beginning and I hope that's okay. But I'm hoping that maybe some of the listeners can find this relatable or maybe they have similar experiences. But I really had to go back to think about my own issues with weight and body image and food. Um, And this goes pretty far back. And I was hoping maybe we could talk about this. But I grew up in a household where my mother did have some part-time work at night sometimes, but she was the consummate baker. She baked everything from pies to buckles to cobblers and cookies and loaves of bread. 
And I loved all that. I love food. And I think that's a really a pretty normal thing to say that like, I really enjoyed all those foods. And my mother has um, Polish ethnicity. So she baked a lot of the Polish food, which is not really always that healthy, like the sausages and potato based things. And so a lot of that food is delicious, but it's really high in fat. And my dad loved eating as well. And I think my dad had a lot of unhealthy behaviors, but the weird part of it was my dad grew up as a chubby kid and I was never overweight per se until I got to junior high. And in junior high, I'm sure there were some issues and this is something to think about as well as far as hormonal changes, but I did gain 50 pounds in a year and I went from hundred pounds to 150, something like that. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it was emotional eating. I know for sure. I remember hiding my eating. I remember like finding things in cupboards and taking it to my room and engaging in that like sort of secretive eating practice, which is not healthy. I also know that year that a McDonald's moved into our neighborhood, and so it was within walking distance or bike riding distance, and so that I do recall sneaking, you know, you can buy a cheeseburger for 99 cents. Most kids have a dollar, you know, or at least I did back in the day. So I remember buying sometimes cheeseburger and fries before dinner, like having Mm -hmm. a pre-dinner dinner, and it became a a really hard issue for me to deal with because my mom, in spite of all her baking, always had what my dad said was a wonderful figure, and he put a lot of emphasis on that. And my dad also called attention to people who were overweight, and he made a lot of comments about that. And I just felt like I could never live up to it because I just don't have my mom's body type. I am a weird combination of both of them, and my dad was a big guy, and I always felt like there was this like weird binary between like you know the small thin people in my mom's family. And then my mom would always make these comments, well, your dad's from Scotland and they're all big and brawny and, you know, they needed that up in the Highlands. Just a weird dynamic, right? And so then I, I had that sort of like overweight, not feeling great about myself for about three years. And then I joined the high school swim team. And while I was not a very good swimmer, just the amount of calories one burns in swimming really helped me out. And I just want to preface this with like, however people feel comfortable, that's awesome and great. I just never felt that comfortable being overweight. I know there's so much today about acceptance and body acceptance. I just never felt that great about it. And it's probably the way I grew up. You know, if I had a more accepting home life, maybe I'd been okay with it, but I just didn't like going to stores and trying to try on pants and nothing fit. I always felt like, I don't know. I, I just felt like it was a shortcoming of mine. I felt guilty about it. And so I'm like bringing all this baggage and then I have my own four kids. And I wondered if if this um, emphasis on body shape and image is something that's across the West. Is there any part of my story right now before I even talk about my kids then? Does any of this like resonate with you or is just this like my weird dysfunctional family that I grew up in? <laughs> so I actually went through a similar phase around that same age where I would go, I remember going downtown with a friend probably multiple times a week. And there was like a little, um, there was a little like fast food restaurant and I would get French fries multiple times a week, but I sort of didn't make the connection. It wasn't clear to me that that's where my weight gain came from. I didn't mention it to my parents. I don't think that I was actively trying to hide it, but I definitely wouldn't bring it. Like it wasn't something that I would, that I brought up because I think that my parents would have had a conversation or my mom would have had a conversation with me about it. My mom also did a lot of cooking and some baking. Like you said to the diet was potato and meat heavy. My parents both were raised by parents who had grown up in the war or who had experienced the war. So the background there, I think, is a little bit different in those terms. You know, when you mentioned that your dad grew up as a chubby kid, that was really surprising to me just because that's that's actually very different from how my parents grew up. Uh, My mom also grew up on a self-sustaining farm and things and things like so that's really cool. Like she she will talk about her childhood where like the only thing they bought at the store was like sugar and salt and everything else they either made themselves or traded. So like their her whole family story is very different from what we have going on today and what we know today. 
It's weird too because I my dad's family grew up in the you know it was Scotland and I don't know that Scotland was ravaged like England was during World War II but right. when he was little there he had something called rickets there he didn't have enough nutrition and like mm-hmm. both he and my uncle were really really thin but then right. when they came here I think it was just like almost you know the opposite direction right like right. America whatever they call it the land of milk and honey or you know it's, it's right. just like yeah. you know they got here and then it was like he really indulged. And so I think that's interesting that we're still kind of seeing those like post-war values. It's odd to think that that's like generations ahead and we're still kind of like seeing how that affected us. But, um, ooh, French fries and mayonnaise, totally delicious. Yes. The the mayonnaise is the the issue, right? Oh, the French fries are the issue too. But yes, I do like to eat them with mayonnaise too and the good like German and Dutch way. Um, But my, so my mom did a lot of, cooking and she paid a lot of attention to what was in our food but she didn't communicate about that that was just like how things were and so I wasn't so once I started looking into it a little bit more and started reading labels and you know started cutting things out of our diet things that I was buying I realized oh yeah that's probably why we never had that when when we were kids so there was a there were some things that I we just didn't have at home, but there wasn't a conversation about it. And so once I moved out, I was like, oh, now I can eat all of these things that like I didn't get to have when I was a kid. And then once I started reading labels, I had this like aha effect of, oh, that's why my mom didn't buy this stuff. That's why we never had this. The learning curve was still there where, you know, I had to figure these things out a little bit on my own, even though they're, you know, they're very like once, once you do kind of think about it and once you do look into it, it's all kind of self-explanatory and right in front of your face, but it did take me a while to get there. And it does take a little bit of learning about, you know, what good ingredients are and what aren't so good. How do you, have you found ways to talk about this to your kids? Or what are some issues that your kids are struggling with, generally speaking? Well, so, you know, the funny thing is I had that tumultuous adolescent relationship with food where I was eating emotionally. And then, like you said, when I got out on my own, another big key issue that I'm going to put out there was alcohol, that I really struggled with that. And so after high school, I was like fit from swimming, but then I stopped doing that. And so then it was just this whole yo-yo effect of, you know, and for me, it's like 20 to 30 pounds where I can gain it and lose it. And when I really get determined, I will, I will be really smart. Like you said, it's not that complicated. I know if I start eating fruits and veggies more and kind of cutting out convenience foods, I don't eat a lot of fast food. That's never been my real problem. And, you know, um, finding myself pregnant in my 20s uh, was kind of a hectic time. And I gained 90 pounds with that first pregnancy. And so, yeah, that's way too much for someone. I'm not very tall. Um, I'm like five foot four ish. (laughs) And so (laughs) I bring that up only because it seems like ever since I've had my children, they've probably seen me on some sort of mode of like trying to do like a Weight Watchers program or something like that. And this is not an ad for that program. I think the thing that was good about that one is it just teaches you to think about portion control. Mm -hmm. That is another really pressing issue here, I think, in America. And a lot of people have talked about that, like the size of our meals, or if you buy bagels, they're the size of a dinner plate instead of the size that they should be. My kids have sort of seen me in one program or another. And I've tried to set a good example with like keeping healthy things around. But with um, my son, who is now 16, we had a lot of trouble where he had an issue with textures. And he does like healthy foods, but I have kind of put this all to the wayside. But when I was introducing him to solids, he was fine if it was a puree. But then anytime anything was mixed, if it had like a something that didn't seem like it fit together, like a baby food with some rice in it, he threw up. And he oh. vomited probably every day for like two years. This kind of lasted well into maybe kindergarten because I remember a clear moment, and he remembers it too, we were out on a field trip. 
and I had packed a lunch. It was a healthy lunch with orange slices and there was a seed in one of the oranges and he wasn't expecting it. And he totally like vomited on his lunch. And this little girl next to him was just like, oh my God, you know, that's not pleasant. And he was sort of um, felt really embarrassed about it. And so he, he had that issue. He has, um, this is for anyone that maybe has something like that, because I've read now after the fact that it's pretty common for younger people to have issue. It's a textural thing. It's not the food flavor. It's just okay. Like you can give them a banana, you can give them Cheerios, but when I mix those two things up together, oh my gosh, you know, no way. Right. Um, He's definitely evolved and does eat a lot of really healthy stuff and a lot of different foods, which I can't even believe because when I was living through those moments when he was two and three and like literally everything would come back, it was a daily occurrence and I just felt so overwhelmed. Like, what am I doing wrong? Right. Uh, When, you know, now he's, it was, it was messy and it was just, it felt really just, I really struggled with that a lot. My other daughters, they have eaten more things, but I feel like, again, they don't want to try as much. Um, I've heard this from a lot of working parents and working mothers, especially like a child that will just eat waffles and chicken nuggets. And I feel as though that's a failure on my part. I did try to do all the things with like introducing the healthy foods. And really my youngest daughter, one of the first things she picked up and started eating was a piece of asparagus, which I was like very impressed, you know, like we were eating it. She saw us, you know, and that's what they say, model the behavior which right. I do. I love that. But she picked it up and was like, you know, gnawing on this asparagus. I'm like, oh my God, she's going to be the one that eats really well. Well, it's six years down the road. And like most of the kids, she doesn't like a lot of different vegetables. I think the veggies that my family eats are like carrots and corn, which probably aren't the greatest ones. I can get some people to eat a little bit of salad, but I feel like we could do better. And again, it's this culture of, you know, I get it because pizza tastes good. A cheeseburger tastes good. And I think it can be really hard. Like you mentioned earlier with your daughter, even if fruit is an option, well, how does that compare when there's like chocolate chip muffins or a sandwich or whatever they're calling it? How do you, I struggle with making that decision, you know? So how is it that my child out in the world alone is going to be like, hmm, apple or pancakes. What do I want to do right now? I mean, that's a hard decision. So we've definitely felt that. I think there's a lot of other issues at play. um, So we can talk about that a little bit more, but it's definitely a struggle here. I have other notes as we move forward, but I think one thing that's really scary is according to the Centers for Disease Control in America, obesity now affects one in five children and adolescents in the United States. And so That to me is really telling, but also incredibly scary because, you know, obesity, again, I'm all for people that are feeling comfortable in their own skin. I, you know, I totally get that, but it's just like, I don't want my child to be at risk for other things then too, like diabetes, high blood pressure, cholesterol. It's not just the obesity. It's that that can set them up for a lifetime of other health issues. Right. Right. Yeah, I agree with that. And that's a that's a disconcerting number. I would say that, too. And just to go back a little bit to what you were saying earlier, I actually was not as good about thinking about eating healthy and eating well until my daughter, my oldest daughter started eating with us. So it's all about you. For me, it was all about thinking about the example that I'm setting, just like you said. Right. And so that is something that I think about a lot where during my pregnancy with her, I ate a lot more. I ate a lot of fast food. I I will say that Uh, my husband and I just were really sort of, we felt really busy compared to what we have going on now. You know, we weren't busy at all, but (laughs) yeah, I don't have time to make anything. Let's just go get a burger and some French fries. And I was like burgers and French fries all the way. Like that was always what I love to eat. And uh, I, you know, when I came to, to the United States, I was like, oh, now I can eat this all the time. And uh, once she started eating with us, I started paying more attention to what kind of example I was setting, really. And so out of my three kids, she probably struggles with making those choices the most. And so sometimes there's another thing to feel guilty about, right? But sometimes I wonder if with the food that I ate, 
during my pregnancy has something to do with their taste buds and what they like. Because my younger two, by the time I was pregnant with my younger two, like I said, I was paying a little more attention to what I was eating and they do eat a little bit better. And, and then again, she also ate better when she was little. And then once somebody puts something, you know, sweet on your plate, you're not going to touch the broccoli again, kind of thing. Right. So I'm not, you know, I, I don't want to be too boastful and I don't want to count my chickens with my little one. She does eat a lot of, she does eat a lot of variety of what I'm putting on her plate. And we can talk about that a little bit more. I like the idea of the, of the rainbow. So I'd like to have two or three things of different colors in front of her and kind of see what she picks. And she does a good job with that too. She eats like a lot of green stuff actually right now. She did do really well with asparagus the other day and she'll eat broccoli and she'll eat um, spinach and, and things like that, which really surprises me. And I do wonder sometimes if that has something to do, like I said, with what I was eating during my pregnancy and then also the examples that we're setting. I noticed at some point that I started getting upset with my daughter for only ever picking a burger when we go to a restaurant until I realized that's all I ever pick. And oh. so then I had to be like, all right, if I'm, you know, if I um, only ever eat a burger when we go to the restaurant, then maybe what, then how can I expect her to to pick something else off the menu. And so I started with myself. I started, you know, looking at what else is on the menu that I might like. And I started ordering a salad every once in a while or just other things because I always do have this like remote hope that eventually it will kick in what they see us doing. And eventually it will, they'll remember and see what they saw and make similar choices. And for, you know, as for the fruit, I think a lot of it, and I think we'll we'll talk about that a little bit more as we um, as we discuss this further. A lot of it has to do with how the language that we use to describe certain things, right? So the treat, when we hear the word treat, we think of something sweet, right? Or we think about a muffin. So I'm so my kids actually really enjoy eating fruit if I like present it in a good way. And so I have like my daughter loves a fruit platter. So if I cut up five different kinds of fruit and put it in front of her on a plate, she will not even ask about cookies. And so that's the kind of thing that like, but like you said, that's not, that takes me, you know, five to 10 minutes to put together when they come home from school and it's snack time where it's a lot easier to just grab, you know, something in a box and put that in front of them. So there's, you know, those multiple aspects of what, the convenience factor, the time factor that it takes to prepare something healthy, and then also the way that we attach language to it or the associations that come with it. Yeah, I want to let you off the hook for the pregnancy eating because I will say this, my first pregnancy was the 90 plus weight gain. <laughs> I was eating, like, I just remember really being into chocolate milk um, because I don't really drink milk. It's not really something that's appealing to me at all. But, you know, thinking about the pregnancy and maybe there was a need for more calcium. So I just remember eating, drinking a lot of chocolate milk and I was working at a hospital at the time as a writer and they had a really nice cafeteria. And I remember they always had chocolate cake. And it just, I thought, I thought, oh, my son is going to love chocolate. And it's the weirdest thing. He actually abhors chocolate and oh, won't, yeah. won't even, he is the one of all the kids for a long time. He never ate anything sweet, nothing. It baffles the mind. He mm -hmm. wouldn't eat any candy. He still has never really had birthday cake. He does not like ice cream. I got him to try like vanilla wow. ice cream one time. So I'm going to say that maybe it's a, what is it? Correlation and as opposed to causation that, mm -hmm. you know, I just think it's the child rather than, because then my last one, now I will say this, my last pregnancy, I gained the least amount of weight. I felt the best. I was using the heck out of a juicer. And I remember I was juicing yeah. like carrots and beets because I had a garden and I felt really great. Oh, awesome. Yeah. I gained the least amount of weight with that pregnancy. I mean, it was still, you know, substantial. I think it was more like 50 pounds though, instead of 90. And right. I lost that weight really quickly and mm -hmm. I felt really good. I felt really good after that pregnancy, but you know, she's, she's the one that, you know, chicken nuggets and French fries. Um, <laughs> so started out with the asparagus and I think what you're, what we'll be talking about more is just the, the cultural aspects of this. Like you're talking about the wording. I think there's just so much that's wrapped up 
in school now that has, you know, that has a tie to food and quote unquote, this like treat culture. Like if you do something really well, your class earns a pizza party. And, you know, it just seems like that's really enmeshed in the school culture. Now, my kids were at a public school for a little while, and I love this principal for doing this. She said, we are not doing anything celebratory with food. If your child has a birthday and they want to bring in like pencils or stickers, we will do that. But we are not allowing anyone to bring in cupcakes or treats or candy for anything. When we have celebrations for holidays, same thing. And I was just like, bravo to that principle for making that decision because she just said, I'm horrified by the rate of obesity. There were a lot of um, children in the school that had diabetes. And so she made that call and I thought it was a good one. The birthday parties and the the parties at at school, I think that those are, for me, are in some ways two separate issues as well. So the, you know, the birthday parties that that are like in the middle of the day, like they're not at a mealtime and then they do pizza and cake. And then, yeah, and the candy, your kid comes back and they're all riled up because it was also at a bouncy place or something like that. <laughs> right. And and the eating schedule is completely off. It seems like food is such a big issue around how we do events, too. Like, here's an ice cream social and here's, you know, come do this and we'll give you free pizza or whatever, where I wish that there was more internal or intrinsic rewards with things and that's how I feel too about the pizza parties or you know when there's like fundraisers whichever class raises the most funds there's a pizza at the end I wish there was more talk about the the value of donating as compared to donating in order to receive something for it. A lot of the fundraisers we have for our school are food oriented as well so it's right. buy pizza kits buy a coupon book for certain pizza chain, sell these candy bars. We So we not only have had a lot of food as reward, but then it's like also what we're doing is all food-based as well. So there's been a pizza one. Sometimes we have these other fundraisers that are like, come eat at X restaurant and the restaurant will donate 5% of the portions right. to back to the school. So it's not only like the rewards are, but like, like you said, pancake breakfast and pizza party, ice cream social, donut Sunday. It, it just adds up. That's what the right. issue is, right? If you have 25 kids in a classroom, then you already have, and everybody brings something for their birthday, then you already have most weeks one extra treat, if we want to call it that. And that's on top of all of the other things. And, uh, you know, like I said earlier, if we're, if my daughter is receiving a brownie as a reward for a good behavior and I ask her, so what did you do that earned you the reward? There's no learning there. There's no, it doesn't reinforce any, any sort of like, it's not a positive reinforcement of a behavior because it's not connected and, and she doesn't remember what the good behavior was. And so that's really disconcerting to me because I don't, I just don't think that we're doing our kids any favors if we're labeling, if we're connecting these, like these foods that are really just not good for you. They don't give you any nutrition, but somehow they become this like positive thing that we're supposed to strive for. I just, you know, it's this idea that like we're doing something, we're doing something nice for the kid, but we're really not. And that's what my concern is. And that's sort of what I'm trying to change in my household is just the the connection for, you know, if I can take five minutes out of my day to make a fruit platter now, you know, then and if I can associate that with I did something nice for you, that's a shift that that's the kind of shift that I'm looking to bring about in my family. But it just feels like you're working against this huge culture where it's not labeled like that and it's, the associations aren't like that and so it's difficult to implement that at home if it feels like everybody else is working against you kind of thing. Right and so you've already talked a little bit about modeling at a restaurant or modeling what you eat. You talked a little bit about how if you want your oldest daughter to kind of make these healthy choices you have started making those healthy choices as well and I love the idea of the fruit. I That is one thing. Everyone here loves fruit. I can get, I'll buy, I'll go to the store and buy, you know, grapes and apples and nectarines and plums and pears. And honestly, it's all gone in three days, which I'm really excited about. That's awesome. What are some practical things that you're doing right now to sort of help reframe the conversation? And then maybe you could launch us into some of the research that you found as well. 
Right. So I looked at an article from Psychology Today by Kristen Fuller. She provides um, seven lessons about communicating to your kids about healthy eating and just generally being healthy. And we can kind of go through, you know, lesson by lesson and see how useful we find them. But one, the first lesson, and we've already sort of alluded to this a little bit, is the disadvantages of labeling food as either good or bad. Doing that, she explains, makes the bad food more desirable by default, right? So we all know uh, that we does, something that we can't have is what we want most. And some people, I think it's a little bit of a personality issue. Some people tend toward that a little bit more than others. My older daughter definitely is that kind of person that like wants what she can't have. And so it's important for me to figure out ways to talk about this and to make it uh, exciting to talk about healthy food. And one way to do that is to look at the rainbow. I thought that was that was really helpful. They actually taught them when we were in Maryland, the preschool program actually spent a good amount of time talking to the kids about like eating the rainbow. And so they would talk about what the different colors are and what they do for your body. I think that's really important. And that's really useful to have that information. So it's not just so you're not just saying like apples are good for you, but you're able to say red food gives you a strong heart, for example. Green food helps you fight off sickness. It keeps you healthy. Yellow food helps your body heal cuts. So that way you don't have that like good and bad labeling. You have a way of explaining to your child what each color actually does. And then you can have the conversation of like, okay, which colors do we have on our plate today? You know, which colors should we maybe look for tomorrow? And you can get your kids involved in that conversation and they do get excited about it because it's like they love the rainbow and they love colors. And so you can get them excited about that. I have a really helpful graphic that I found somebody that I follow on Instagram. Her Instagram handle is kids eat in color with periods between all the words. And I will share that in our Instagram stories as well. There's a graphic that it gives example language for how each color helps our bodies. And so I think that's that's useful in talking to our kids about what good food is. I struggle with the idea of using like another another suggestion that Kristen Fuller makes is to use sometimes language around not so healthy foods. And I just know that we at my house struggle with the sometimes a little bit. I know that like my daughter didn't, I did not take her to McDonald's or Taco Bell or anything like that. No fast food restaurants um, until she was maybe like five. And then somebody like somebody else took her first. So like a neighbor picked her up from school when she was in kindergarten and then they went to McDonald's for snack. It was like an, it was like a half day, but they had lunch at school. And so he picked them up at like 120 or something and then took them to McDonald's for snack and got them like a kid's menu. And I relied on him. I was working. I couldn't get her. So I was really grateful. But the whole time in my head, I was just like, that's not a snack. That's a full meal. And she already had lunch. And so but anyway, at that point, she knew then what McDonald's was. And so when we were driving by, she would ask about it. Oh, there's, you know, that's the restaurant that he took me to. Like, can we go there? And so I personally, and so that since then, it's been this like big thing that she wants to eat every chance she gets. And so the sometimes is hard for me. I, it was a lot easier. I didn't, you know, it wasn't an issue before somebody took her there. So when we went on long road trips, and there was a McDonald's and a Panera, I could get take her to the Panera and get her something there, could sort of make better choices. And I didn't have her pestering me, which is difficult for me to handle. If I'm on a 10-hour road trip and I'm going for a break and I have three kids with me and the oldest kids is just nagging, 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 or even two of them are nagging, nagging, nagging about what they want to eat, I will most likely cave because I just don't have the energy at that point in my day and in my life to argue with them about it. But so it's for me, it's harder to sort of work through the sometimes. What are your thoughts on the colors? Is that something that your kids are aware of? Were they ever introduced to that? Or how does how does the language around food work at your house? Well, I think to connect back to our podcast theme, 
so much of my life for the last 10 years has been caught up in working and scheduling and trying to figure out just how I'm going to be at Wayne State for 10, 12 hours that I think it might have impacted some of my choices there. And so I had a note about this, like, I love this idea and I eat this way. I don't know that my children always do. And so maybe this is something that's never too late. And I said they do like fruits and my older two children will eat some salads. They do like certain things like squash or carrots, that kind of thing. But I think what's really played a role in my planning more than anything is just kind of stress and time management. And I don't stop at fast food places, but I will cop to pizza and frozen pizza. And Mm -hmm. sometimes it just was easier. And then I've talked about it already, but my mom helped me out a lot. But my mom is getting older. She's 70 now, I believe. And so she was a hippie. I mean, in addition to all her pies and cookies and all that, I mean, my mom was the original, man. She had like a yogurt maker back in the day. And she did a lot of, yeah, she was like, you know, kind of ahead of her time. She used to make this thing, which now we call a smoothie. She called it a health (sighs) shake. And so Uh she she used to make us these health shakes, banana and fruit. And it was basically today's smoothie. And And so she was kind of really ahead of her time in that way. But now that she's older and I was relying on her so much, it's kind of like the story you just told about, you know, the neighbor taking your daughter to McDonald's. My mom will feed them, but she's like, well, I just made hot dogs because that's really fast. I know they'll all eat it. Or I just took them to Burger King because they like that. And I'm like, damn, you know, I want to be thankful. I'm getting, it's just like you said, I'm getting the help and my mom's older and, you know, she's already met with that. I don't want to eat that. I don't like that because back five years ago, she used to make more of a rainbow plate with like maybe some sort of protein, some two or three different kinds of veggies and maybe like couscous or farro or some sort of grain, but they didn't eat it. And so she felt like, dismayed. And I feel the same thing making this beautiful meal. And I used to be far more experimental. I remember one time I made paella. I had to go and buy the saffron (laughs) and (laughs) it was doing all these different things because that was considered a heart heart healthy meal. I remember one time I made chapino, which is like a, a fish stew. It was a lot of effort and no one ate it, I think, but mm-hmm. me. And so right. I think at some some point I just kind of gave up. And so I love this idea. Maybe this is something I can do better. But for me, it was always that balance between I've been teaching class for six hours and I was on the road and now I have to do dinner. And so I love this idea of the rainbow plate. I think sadly, sometimes the convenience factor has played more of a role in my planning than anything else. So I am sure others probably can relate to that. But I think what you're doing is so smart of like introducing this concept early and kind of sticking to it. I think that's really the key, right, is sticking with it. Yeah, I think the important part about the food that we enjoy and that we like, and I don't know if this is stating the obvious, it's just so easy to train and untrain your taste buds. Like, yes, they like it because they eat it a lot. Once they stop eating it a lot, they will also like other things. Like this is something for me that I uh, had to go through multiple times. I will say this. I did not touch salad until maybe like five or six years ago. I just would not eat it, especially not if it had a vinaigrette dressing. Like I would eat salad like drenched in ranch. And then, you know, exactly. And then, and so then it's like, Aaron made a face. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's the, you know, the, it's not until somebody pointed out that's not healthy. And then my husband really enjoys a good vinaigrette and I wasn't about to make different dressings if I was going to make a salad. And so I started eating it more and lo and behold, I started liking it more. And so that's the, you know, those flavor like those the salty flavors and the sweet flavors too once you have them in your day you crave them right so right now I'm going through this and I know exactly how to fix it um I after lunch I usually make a cup of tea and I eat like a few like cookies with my tea and I know that I crave it now because I've done it for a while And so it's like breaking any other habit. You have to do it for three weeks or a month, and then the craving is gone. And so that's how I I used to eat a lot of chips after dinner in front of the TV. And then once you get to that point, you crave it. And so then you have to sort of make a good choice for 
every day for a month or something, but then it stops being a thing that you have to make a choice on every day. And so I think the same goes when we, you know, when we teach our kids how to eat healthy is to help them not get used to intense sweetness, for example, like they will put honey on everything. So I try to kind of like not let them do that so much just because it gets them so used to everything, not because honey is bad, you know, honey is obviously, or I assume that honey is a lot better than sugar, but just the matter of like sweetening everything. So that everything is so sweet and then they get used to everything being so sweet and then they crave the sweetness. So just to kind of what I'm, what I'm trying to do is just to present like the range of flavors and find some things that they enjoy and make more of that so that they just kind of get used to yeah, the range of flavors and then also not just to always crave like the salty fats, I guess, if that makes sense. I love that you evolved in your tastes in salad dressing. Um, And I get that too. You know, I think whenever I start to get into a good rhythm or pattern with eating healthy, I feel better. And then I'm like, I like this feeling. I like going to bed and feeling like satisfied, but not overly full or disgusted because I ate something and that that didn't agree with me or that was just too much. It is costly. I think it costs more to eat healthy. I'm going to put that out there. Yeah, um, absolutely. It always comes back to that, which is, you know, people with less money, you can feed a family of four a hot and ready pizza for $5, but what does that $5 get you as far as like organic fruits and vegetables, right? Not much. So that's always an issue for people that might be working on a single salary or maybe who are working still as a graduate teaching assistant. I know that when we were on a limited budget, it really put a hamper on what types of healthy food I could buy. And I would assume it's the same for many others that they realize there's this option of the rainbow plate, but they simply can't afford it. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree with that. And that's a huge, that's a huge challenge. Yes. And I suppose the main takeaway is just keep trying or try the best you can for this moment in time to set that good, healthy pattern with your kids. Just keep trying. And I think this kind of plays into just what we're talking about, which is like, okay, try the vinaigrette, try it again, try it again. And then maybe by, you know, the seventh or eighth time, you're like, this isn't so bad. And you said that was kind of one of the tips for working with the children as well. Right. That was the second lesson actually from the article. And the and another another way to think about this too, which I found helpful, which was again from the Instagram blog that I also mentioned earlier, uh, the Insta- the Instagram profile, is to think about it in terms of putting it in front of your kids um, so that they see it. And then right the first time you put it on their plate, they see it. Then the second time they look at it and they think, oh, I've seen that before. I wonder what that feels like. So they touch it. But they're not quite there yet that they want to try it, right? The third time they have it on their plate, they've seen it before, they're familiar with it, they know what it feels like, they see other people eating it, maybe they'll give it a try. And so just to think about it in terms of, I completely hear you on how frustrating it is when you cook a meal and nobody touches it. That happens to me all the time. There have been so many days recently too, where my son like looks at the food and is like, I want a peanut butter and honey sandwich. And just to work through that, because it takes me time, like I have to plan my day around, you know, scheduling time to make dinner and to then have that like outright rejection is really frustrating, but to just continue to do it, stick with it, put it in front of them because eventually they might try it. And then if they try it a few more times, they might eventually end up liking it. So that's the second lesson from this article. Lesson number three, and I've also kind of alluded to that as well, is to get them involved, right? Talk to them about the rainbow. Ask them questions about what haven't we done yet. So the the rainbow is one thing. And then I actually also go by the healthy plate. I don't know if you're familiar with that as well. I think that's something that they teach the kids as well, where um, it shows you a good uh, ratio between the different food groups, right? So not just the, the rainbow usually is mostly about vegetables and fruits. But then of course, when you're thinking about the healthy plate, you have to have some dairy and you have to have some protein and you have to have some grain as well. And so you can get them involved in like, what do we still, what color do we still need to add? And then of course, there are some other easy ways to get them involved too. If they help cook something, there's a ton of research that suggests 
that they are much more likely to try it if they were involved in preparing the food. And my son is actually really good with utensils. Like he like he enjoys like peeling carrots and peeling cucumbers and cutting them, chop, chopping them small and things like that. So he's always excited to get involved. That's another thing though, the convenience factor, the time factor, right? They're not helping you. Everything <laughs> takes four times as long. The kitchen is a disaster. So then cleaning up takes four times as long, but it does seem to be a helpful thing to do. And then I don't know if your kids are involved in your vegetable garden. I don't know if you still have a vegetable garden. I know that you like to garden a lot. Um, getting your kids involved in that is one of the suggestions that she makes. My husband gardens a little bit. And I know that my son also has done some gardening at school and he really enjoys it. So that's another way to get them to think about where the food comes from that we eat. Do you garden with your kids? Yeah, actually, most of them like being outside. I know my son, my he's the oldest. He always kind of likes to look around. We have about six blueberry bushes now and maybe the same number of raspberries. They're, and they go really fast once we have them. Um, they are like in and out. We also had strawberries. They didn't do as well this year. And so they he'll go out and pick those. We had a bumper crop of squash. So maybe calling out to all my listeners and to you as well, you did. I have about, oh my gosh, I must have 40 different squash squashes um, <laughs> in my pantry right now. And so I have the butternut, I have the acorn. Um, one thing that was really good, and I think we I put on the grill was a summer squash and I just grilled it really lightly. It was so delicious. Mm -hmm. I also was able to work some of my squash into a veggie lasagna, which surprisingly now, now my son and my daughter did eat. Nice. One thing though that you're saying that really resonates with me is there was a night where I made tacos, okay? And I taco is a good go-to meal here because I can yeah. switch out the ground beef for ground turkey or ground chicken. It does have some lettuce. It does have some tomato. Exactly. So I think it's a pretty overall, a pretty okay choice. Now I'm sure people can correct me on, you know, how many carbs are in the taco shells and all that. But I made them and my son was like, oh, tacos. <sighs> and I said, you know what? He's 16 and my daughter is 13. And I said, I have two cookbooks for children. If you want to plan a meal and make it, I am 100% behind you. I will give you the money to go buy the ingredients. You're a smart cookie. You can go figure that out. And I would be happy to support you in that. No one's taken me up on that so far. <laughs> I'm fine. If they want to have that autonomy, I would be thrilled. I wouldn't even care what it is. You know, I would mm -hmm. be so happy that they were helping out. But the garden is fun. I think that's a win-win because I know it's not like hard cardio labor, but it gets people outside. It gets them walking around. So there's a little bit of exercise, a little bit of vitamin D going on. And it's fun. One of our colleagues was like, God, gardening, that's so boring. And I'm like, I think of it absolutely opposite of that. What I love about gardening, and this is going to be probably a tortured metaphor, but whatever. It's a lot like the creative work that we do. You know, when you set out to like write a chapter, maybe this is me because I have this like weird, wacky writing style, but I never know exactly what it's going to be like. You know, I have this idea mm -hmm. in my mind. I have sort of a sense of what the project's going to look like, but I never know exactly what the end product's going to be. And I love that about gardening. It's like you can plant one thing and it does really well or something surprises you. Like there are some surprise volunteer tomatoes. I don't remember how they got over there. Uh, one year I had some pumpkins that came up because someone must of like left a pumpkin out in the garden and it reseeded. So I think gardening is really fun in that way for the kids to see. There's a lot. You were talking about that concept of unschooling that, okay, so they could be learning concepts out in the real world from the garden. My youngest daughter really likes it a lot. And I think my son, the middle two daughters are kind of like, meh, you know, but they like the right. berries. So. <laughs> right. Well, that works. Uh, yeah. I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Alice Walker's essay in Search of Our Mother's Garden. Uh, so you might need to read that one because I think talking, comparing the way you compare it to our other creative work, I think is really interesting. And it does help in teaching them how these things come into being, right? You start with the seed and then you watch it grow. Kids love that. I think that's always a good project that they do at different daycares. And at some point in the spring, they all plant a seed and watch whatever grows out of it grow. And so I that's exciting for them. I personally am not a gardener, which breaks my mother's heart because she likes to do that too. But it's not, can't really get excited about it. I do get, you know, understand the idea behind it, but it just seems 
um, daunting to me. And partially it might be because I've just never gotten into it. And if I gave it a shot, I might really enjoy it. So that's, that's really neat though, that you're doing that with your kids. Then what's the next point? Because I think it kind of coincides. So lesson four, according to the article that we're that we're walking through here, is to keep it to yourself. And I think that's a straightforward point, right? Uh, but it can be really, really difficult because. So what she means by keep it to yourself is if you're on a diet or you're you have issues with weight or you have issues with body positivity, not to share that with your kids, to not talk negatively about certain kinds of food or to have negative connotations with exercising, where exercising is a way to lose weight, but rather it should be a part of, you know, living healthy and living a sort of a fulfilled lifestyle. Um, So just to kind of avoid the connotations, again, as we're already talking about with exercise as punishment or not being comfortable in your own body. And I think what really what resonated with me a little bit when you were talking earlier is just the impact that language can have, right? You're saying your dad would make comments about other people. So it's not even just that somebody would say something about you specifically, or that we would tell our kids, you need to lose weight. I think we all know not to do that. But it goes beyond that, right? To think to think about how we're talking about other people. And my daughter, I know that my daughter has an awareness. She used the word fat the other day. And I had not used that, I don't think, not that I remember. But there are certainly other things that are, it's where it's difficult to have sort of that front of body positivity when you've struggled yourself with your body image for a long time or your entire life. So that's a tough one, I think, to implement. Lesson five from the article is, again, to educate them on healthy living rather than focusing on a healthy weight. I think that's that's related to what we just talked about. And we've already covered a lot of that, the, the language that, that is surrounded with food. And the, and also a big point here in this lesson is to emphasize eating as part of a larger lifestyle choice, right? A healthy li- lifestyle choice. So it's talking about nutrition, what foods can do for us, what the different, how the different foods help us do things, but to then also connect that to exercising, sleeping well, maybe even something like screen time, all of those things go together as part of a healthy lifestyle. So that's, that's lesson number five. And then lesson number six, this is something that I struggle with too, partially because of what I was talking about earlier, is to ditch the clean plate club. So children, actually, if we give them some freedom over their own eating choices, they have a pretty clear sense of when they're full and when they're hungry. And if we load their plates and then tell them they have to finish what's on their plate, that really kills that a little bit. And for me, like I said, having been raised by two parents whose parents knew what it meant to be hungry, we did not waste food at my house. And my mom was really, really good at using leftovers too. That's one way to handle that. But just to understand that we are in a different situation. That's something that I'm having to come to term with, terms with. Like I, we live in a different culture. We live in a culture of excess. Not, we're not hungry. We can, we have, I have never gone hungry. My kids have never gone hungry. And so probably even my parents have never gone hungry. And so we just have to kind of come to terms with that. I still, you know, still obviously the goal for me is to minimize waste, but forcing the kids to clean the plate is probably not the way to do that. Um, how do you handle that at your house? Right. I try to let them graze a bit more. And that's the funny thing. I've never been hungry a day in my life, nor have my children. That being said, my husband was. He actually grew up much more impoverished. He remembers being hungry. And so that kind of gets tricky too, because we have different ideologies about food. So his experiences overall with food were a lot different than mine growing up. He didn't have that education like you've mapped out. He didn't have a rainbow plate. And this speaks to poverty in America that for many people, it's not about can I have 
vegetables and fruits. It's about what can I get for five or ten dollars, and often that is the fast food. And that type of mentality, I think, coincides with this idea of just eating everything you can because you don't know when your next meal is coming. So that does create some tension between how we're raising our kids and their relationships with food. That kind of gets tricky too because we have different ideologies about food. So my husband has also never been overweight ever. No one in his family is overweight. And you know that might be due to the fact that they grew up with not having enough. And so he is clean plate club 100%. He has a different attitude about food. He's never struggled with weight. And so that can kind of be a tension for us sometimes. The other thing I was thinking of is that, you know, that generation of you've got to eat all this, they did a lot more exercise. And what I mean by that is, you know, they walked a lot more, they were walking to school they were riding their bikes. Even my generation did a lot more of that activity. So it seems like you said, it seems foolish to be trying to transpose these values from like maybe the mid-century where people were still walking five or six miles a day to now where my kids, you know, they have a very sedentary lifestyle. They, we try to get them outside and I think they do a pretty good job of that, but it's just not, they don't need the same amount of calories when, when a person is just kind of sitting around on their laptop or at school all day, they don't need all those extra calories. And I think we talked about this a little bit when we're thinking about school this year, but most of the kids I know are driven to school. I don't know really anyone that walks in this area because it's so busy and congested here that I think we're all terrified. But that was something I just did every day. And I know there's a bunch of like hilarious memes, but no, we really did. We just walked to school every day. It wasn't really a question. Today, I think the children are even missing out quite a bit on that 20 minutes to school, 20 minutes back. That's still something, right? That's still some activity. That's exercise and that teaches independence too. I mean, if it's your job to get yourself to school rather than waiting to just hop in the car and then mommy has to be ready at the same time or like mommy tells you when it's time to go. I really wish that I could instill that sense of independence. And and that also gives you 20 minutes where you're not being supervised. The eight-year-olds, they need some unsupervised time too. Like I... I don't know. That's that's really that's really something that I obviously I've talked about before and I'll probably talk about again. That's that's such a such an important thing for me and it really irks me that that's not possible for us right now. Let me do lesson number 7 from the article. That's the last one. Um and that's also again something that's already come up in the conversation which is to be body positive. She suggests that we should celebrate that bodies come in all shapes and sizes and use body positive language instead of body shaming language. Um, So that means that you talk positively about yourselves and others and to emphasize that you're exercised for fun, not to achieve a certain size or shape, and then never talking poorly about other people's bodies. So that kind of nicely sums up a lot of the things that we already talked about in this episode. This I feel like this episode more than any other ones that we uh, that we've done so far requires a lot of hacks to make everything work. Aaron, do you have anything that you can recommend? Do you have any hacks that work well for you that maybe others um, can find helpful? Well, I have tried to assess my situation because as I noted last episode, there were times in the last four years where I was gone for 12 hours at a stretch. And so this is an obvious one and I think it works to some extent. It just, I had a sort of question with it, which is how many crock pot meals can one family eat? Right. And I will say though that using that tool has given me some sense of control and stability over at least what a few meals a week are. And so I borrowed this idea from a cooking show at one point in time, but it's like make one crock pot dish. And this applies only to people that probably eat meat-based proteins. So you, what I would do was maybe make a pork loin in the crock pot for meal one and then kind of like see how I could retool that. You talked about leftovers, but that's a lot of meat on that. So we have the roast the one day, then parlay that into some sort of like barbecue pork sandwiches the next day, and then finally maybe tacos from the left, the final of the pork. That works out okay. But I will say that at some point, Everyone in the family sort of expressed their disgust with another (laughs) crockpot meal, and I get it, but I felt good because I could throw some veggies in there, and at least it seemed to me to be healthier than McDonald's cheeseburgers. So you are, again, I know you've done some work with this. What are some tools that you've used that you feel have been helpful to think about eating healthy in your household? 
Right. So the crockpot for me, I I am with you on that. I like the idea a lot. I have not found very many recipes that where any of the food retains a lot of flavor. So I feel like everything kind of tastes the same. Everything is kind of overcooked. So I've made some, I think the thing that I like most out of the crock pot is soups. I have an, I have a recipe for, for like a chicken tortilla soup. That's pretty good. But with the roasts, it just often feels like when you throw veggies in there, they're just very overcooked. So mm-hmm. I haven't, I like, like I said, I like the idea. I haven't yet found a great way to make it work, but I've talked a little bit before about meal planning. Meal planning is a very huge factor for me just to make sure that we have a diverse uh, range of foods that we eat every week. And by that, I just mean like not pasta five times a day, right? I usually try to mix up like pasta, rice and potatoes. And then there's some other rules that I have about what goes into a weekly menu. There's usually like a soup in there and then there's some Mexican. Like I make nachos a lot, actually, and I count that as a good one because it covers all the four food groups. Just to be clear that I'm not, just to be upfront about the fact that I'm not like a super healthy eater either. It's just been an issue for a long time. One thing that I have tried in the past that hasn't worked, but I have decided now that I'm going to give it another try. My husband suggested this to me at some point. I spent a lot of time on the weekends uh, meal planning and writing grocery lists, right? So I sit down either Friday night or Saturday morning and I pick my seven meals for the next week and I write my grocery list. And I have maybe like 15 to 20 staples that I come back to every week that I then just basically cook in different combinations. And so my husband's like, why are you making that decision over and over and over again? Just make weekly plans and have those grocery lists prepped. So I'm going to sit down again sometime this week. And if anybody has done this before, uh, let me know what worked for you, what worked well for you and what didn't work for you. I'm going to sit down again and make like four weekly menus with the grocery list prepped so that instead of picking seven meals every week, I just have to pick one of the weekly menus and the list is already written and I just have to add what other staples I'm out of. That's what I'm going to give a try just because it seems like I'm spending too much time on meal planning. That might be a little counterintuitive to, you know, what we talked about in terms of diversifying your diet. But at the same time, it does speak to the practicality of time investment in preparing healthy foods. I will say that with the fact that I've gone down to 30 hours and I'm working from home, I do have time to cook every day. And that's really important to me. And that was actually part of why I was stressed out when I was working 40 hours a week because it was so hard to also get dinner on the table. That's that's a choice that I made, I guess. But yeah, that that's my hack. Men, weekly menus. I'll let you know how it goes. Thanks. That's a great idea. And I do agree now that I am home-based from a home office. I don't think I'm wasting as much time with like the commute and all that. So I feel fine about getting a dinner ready in the middle of the day. And I think that's been really nice too, that I have that time. And I think, well, I'm not going out to lunch. I'm not doing the commute. We talked about this last week. So it's okay if I spend maybe 20 minutes in the middle of the day setting up dinner. And that feels really positive to me. And I feel really proud of that because it is a hard decision sometimes, you know, we already talked about it. There's so many convenience foods and I live in a pretty populated area with, you know, I can get sushi when I want it, although that's a relatively healthy choice. There's several Mexican restaurants, there's Middle Eastern food, there's pizza, pizza, pizza. I swear there's like seven pizza restaurants in my neighborhood alone. And it can be difficult sometimes to make the healthier choice for me. And ultimately, When I think about children, we are the ones that are feeding them. Look, a five-year-old isn't riding their big wheel over to McDonald's to get this food. It's it's not them. It's the parents. So ultimately, that does rest on our shoulders, and we have to be responsible for making those decisions for them. And I know that for single-parent families, this can be even more of a hassle because it's one person. At least if I want to go do my shopping, I can do that alone and have that time and space. But I do think this is something that we'll continue, we'll have to continue to think about. We'd love to hear from listeners. What are your experiences with keeping your kids 
fit and healthy? How are you passing on information about what good eating choices they can make? Has the pandemic changed your meal planning at all or how you're cooking for your family? We'd love to hear from you. And in the meantime, you can contact us via our Gmail address, which is phdandparentingpodcast at gmail.com. And you can also find us on Instagram where Judith's been doing an awesome job updating our profile, giving us some different quizzes and content to consider. And so where do we find that Instagram presence? That's at PhD in Parenting. Well, so until next time, we hope to schedule some guests coming up. We hope to continue the conversation. We'd love to hear what you're thinking about. And thank you so much for listening. 